This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Tim Howard, the most capped goalkeeper in U.S. men's national team history, has stayed close to the game of soccer since retiring in 2019. Howard's the minority owner for the USL team in Memphis, along with the international ambassador for his former club team, Everton. When we caught up in 2014, Howard talked about the importance of the World Cup. For me, for any for any international player, that's the top. You can't get higher than that. And opened up about dealing with Tourette syndrome that's plagued him since childhood. It was something that I wanted to suppress and I wanted to hide, and um, you know, I, maybe I wasn't brave enough at the time. Howard says symptoms would reach their peak right before games. My tics and twitches will, will become uh, will become heightened more often. Um, I can feel the tenseness in my muscles. But that he wouldn't change a thing. You said uh, before, if I woke up tomorrow without Tourette's, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> Why not? Up first, we discuss Howard's frugal upbringing and the sacrifices his mom made to keep him humble. I wanted to start off with this because I thought this was interesting when I was talking to uh, your mother, uh, Esther, yesterday. She talked about how uh, back, you know, before you were even born, uh, your mother and your grandparents immigrated uh, to the U.S. in 1956. Mm -hmm. They left Budapest. And she was telling me just kind of the danger involved mm -hmm. with that. So what was, like, what do you know about uh, well, you know, that time? Growing up, you know, my, my grandfather was amazing. He was He's probably the greatest man I've ever known, and um, he used to tell my brother and I, like bedtime stories, you know, we'd, we'd probably stay at his house, uh, my grandparents' house, once a week, and we'd always tell him to tell stories, and he'd tell stories about being in POW camp and being in the military and all the different things, and he'd oftentimes tell us family stories about how they escaped and what it was like and when they decided to go, and um, it, yeah, it was quite, I mean, we were kids, so it was like a story, you know, it was entertaining, but as you got older, you went, wow, that, that was real, that was my mom, and. Uh, my grandma, my granddad, and uncle, so um, kind of special. When your family came to the U.S. for the first time, how much did they actually have? N not a lot, you know. Um, they were immigrants, and they were trying to make a better life, and uh, even though they realized that they would have next to nothing, they also realized the opportunity that America presented, so, um, and they worked hard for it, you know, by by the time my grandparents passed away, they had they had lived a very full life and a, and, and a, a rich life. And so, you know, basically the American dream as we know it. Your uh, parents got divorced when you were uh, three years old. Your mother uh, had to work several jobs just to make ends meet. How tight were things financially when you were growing up? Well, very. You know, I think we know. We, I think we knew it at the time. Um, you did. Yeah, as much as you can know as a kid. Um, but my mom was my mom did an amazing job of um, allowing us to have a good childhood. I mean, when my brother and I look back, I think we had we had a tremendous childhood. You know, we had the typical American upbringing as we knew it. You know, we and we, and we never had holes in our sneakers, and you know, we had we had enough food on the table uh, barely. But you know, there was times when we we'd get up and. Um, you know, the, the pilots on the stove would be on because that was the heat and the kitchen would be warm and the rest of the house would be cold. We were trying to save money, you know, and um, we were latchkey kids and we saw how hard my mom worked because she wouldn't get home. You know, we'd go off to school. She'd get home at you know, five, six, seven o'clock and there were certain periods throughout our childhood that um, she'd take up two jobs, but, uh, you know, she's, she's a very strong one. Do you recall the uh, Mexico national team story where you were given $10 per diem? Yeah, that was, gosh, um, 
when I was a kid, that was like my, I think my first trip was the, uh, was when we got per diem. I'm sure she told it better. I vaguely remember it. <laughs> yeah, she said that, you know, kids were uh, going to Mexico with the national team and everybody was given $10 mm-hmm. per diem, which obviously isn't a lot for mm-hmm. a trip like that. So uh, all the parents, you know, gave their kids extra money to spend mm-hmm. while they were there. And you obviously weren't able to get the extra money. And not only did you not spend the $10 per diem while you were down there, but you saved it to come back and be able to, I guess, buy clothes for yourself or yeah, I mean, like it, I mean, you know, back back then, money was obviously we didn't have a lot of pocket money. So when when, you know, when my brother and I got it, we didn't, uh, we we held on to it, you know, tightly, and we and we spent it wisely. How, how do you think the financial issues growing up helped in shaping you? Um, I think I think it humbles you. I think humility is important, and it, again, as much as as much as we struggled, quote unquote, you know that struggle was really on my mom. She didn't allow it to spill over to us. So, um, you know, I think I, I, for me anyway, I, I appreciate what I have. You know, and I and I think that's a special gift because not a lot of people can can say that. Why soccer? <laughs> I don't know. I wish it was basketball, but. Um, you were a heck of a basketball player as well. You beat um, the former Bulls player Jason Williams. Jason Williams in the game. Yeah, he was amazing. Jersey produces a lot of talent, and I came up in a in, in a time when uh, there was just you know every everybody came <clears throat> to watch the New Jersey Tournament of Champions, and yeah, I love basketball. It's my first love, still is. Um, but soccer was something that was just I was allowed to get all my energy out and run around and. You know, Chase, I was fast. I was, I was, I was basically my son now. I watch him on a soccer field or my daughter and they run past kids and, you know, they don't really know much about soccer, but they have the athletic ability. So that was just a release. You know, my parents put me in, in soccer because I was hyperactive and I needed an outlet. And that was, my, that was a start of sports for me at, I think, age six. Could, were you noticeably better in soccer than the other sports? Yeah, I, I enjoyed all. I played baseball, basketball and soccer and, um, it, it just it just kind of stuck, you know. The, I think the I think the cool thing about soccer in New Jersey or on the East Coast, it's it's a fall and a, a spring sport. Kind of goes into summer as well. So I almost played all year round with indoor, you know, mixed in. Back then we used to play in gyms. There was no astroturf, um, so it was something I could do all year round. I think that's where the bashing. As much as I love basketball, it was like three months, you know, and soccer was pretty much all year round for me. So I know your mom says you didn't do all that well academically when <laughs> you were growing up. So yes. you, you uh, caused her many a sleep, sleepless yeah. nights because yeah. of that. And then I guess, you know, the, the uh, Tourette's is, mm-hmm. as well. But, um, you know, she's talking about how she just, you know, was concerned for future mm-hmm. uh, career prospects, mm-hmm. but soccer seemed like, yeah. you know, a g- good opportunity should, you know, your talent uh, 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 allow it. What what sacrifices do you think you had to make growing up in pursuit of your dreams? Um, you know, I think any anybody who plays on a national teams, youth national teams coming up, and it, it's it's an odd sport in the way the seasons run. And, and for me, you just missed a lot of things as a kid. You know, high school dances, time with friends, different things like that, which seems a small sacrifice now where I'm sitting, but at the time when you're a kid, those are important things, right. you know? And so it, it, en- it ended up for me every now and again would boil over and I'd say, oh, I don't, you know, the heck with this soccer thing. I want to, 
I want to be with my friends. And I think that's when my mom would, her eyes would open really big and be like, no, <laughs> you know, you need, you need to be able to play soccer and, and, and make something of yourself. So I'm glad she, you know, she kept pushing me and kept me on the right path. The regional and state youth championships. Mm -hmm. uh, explain why you guys would actually play for penalty kicks. <laughs> well, I had his coach, Tim Alquin, who's a dear friend. I, I love him. And he's uh, the co-director of my goalkeeper camp. And he used to coach us. He was wild and crazy back then. So um, he's toned it down a bit. He, I was good at penalty kicks. I guess I was, like I said, I was athletic and explosive at that age. And um, I had a good penalty savior record. So I think Coach Mulkman at the time was what we called him. He used to just play play for penalties and you know pack it in and see out overtime and we'd win in penalties. How would you describe the difference in popularity of soccer, mm -hmm. U.S. relative to internationally you know I think the trouble with the with with American soccer is it's not soccer itself it's it's such a big country you know you're talking about a sport that's relatively in its infancy I, I know we've played it a while and the league is 20 years old now which is crazy to think but or something like that but these other sports have been around for forever and you know when you look at soccer it's competing from a popularity standpoint at like number four, number five, maybe trying to compete with hockey, you know? Um, whereas in, you know, in England, it's the number one, it's the, only, it's the only sport. It's a country the size of Texas, maybe smaller. And it's the only sport, it, it, it's, it, it, you know, everyone, men, women, kids, grandparents, everyone knows about football, something about it. Okay, they have cricket and they have rugby, but not even close. Those are, those are a distant second and third. So it, it's, it's the national sport, it's, it's, it's the blood and the lifeline of of English people, of Italians, of, of the French, of the Germans, of the Spanish, it's everything. The cities and, and towns and villages and the country stops, you know? And it's hard when it, when it's hard from a popularity standpoint to compete when soccer is not our number one sport, when we have such a big country, the allegiances aren't as, as tight as, as some of the other sports. It, it, because it, it's, it, we, we may lack the talent in soccer players right now, but it's not as if we lack the quality athletes. They're just no, that's right. in, you know, NFL and mm -hmm. maybe not that many in baseball, <laughs> but, no, you know, basketball right. and hockey. And so how do you get, you know, some of the other best mm -hmm. athletes, you know, as they're growing up, how do you encourage them to, you know, I, pick, uh, pick soccer? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big question, you know. I think we need to, you know. I think soccer, soccer at a, at a youth level is very, very popular. It's a, it's a huge, it's one of the most popular youth sports. You know, right. I think, I think America, uh, you know, as as individual teams, as a league, as a, as a country, as a federation, you know, we need to get into the inner cities more. You know, we need to get into the black communities, the Latino communities. Um, you know, we need to have. I, I think when you grow up as a kid. You want to be who you see. You know, I saw Michael Jordan on television. He was on all the commercials. I saw him on TV. You don't really see. Now we start. We're starting to see soccer players on TV because it's cool. You know, it's it's in fashion. But when I was when I was growing up, we didn't have that. You know, and I think that's how you get that's how you get into kids' faces. You 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 see Clint Dempsey scoring a bicycle kick on TV, and all of a sudden the kid says, "That's who I want to be. I want to go to those games." You know, and that's that's how you know someone becomes your idol, not just. Um, not blindly, you have to see, it has to be in your face. How much do you think it has to do with a lack of money in the sport in the U.S., mm. you know, compared to the other 
big leagues? It, I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's a poor excuse only because if you look if you look at what basketball is and sandlot football and all all the sports we know, you just get a get a ball and you play with your friends. You know, when I'm in when I'm in uh, England, I'm in Manchester or Liverpool. You know, kids come home from school, they get their little clip-on ties, they put them on the floor and make goals and they play. And they play in their, in their school clothes until you know, streetlights come on. That's not a cliche, that's what happens. That, that happens even now. Um, in America, we think of the sport as having to have soccer moms and jugs of, of sports drinks and, and all the uniforms paid for. It's too much, there's almost too much money involved in the youth side of the game, if that makes sense. Because uh, when, when you look at soccer, it costs a fortune to, for a kid to go to the tournament, pay the dues, you know. Right. LeBron James didn't have that. He just got a ball and played with his friends, and that's how he became great. So you're in your early 20s. You're playing for the New York Metro Stars, now <laughs> the New York Red Bulls, and you end up getting a call from the Manchester United goalkeeping yeah. coach telling you the club is interested in your services. Is it true when you get that call? I mean, basically, you, you say, if not another thing yes. happens, I could live on this the rest of my life? For sure. I, I, remember it, I remember it clear as day. I was in national team training camp in January, the annual January training camp. It must have been 2003. I might get my years wrong, but I think it was 2003. Um, in the January camp, we were in Bradenton, Florida, and I got a call. And never saw the, I had never seen the number before, and I picked it up. It was him. And it was almost Mission Impossible style. Like there wasn't much of a conversation. He didn't need a call back. He was just saying, look, we're following you. There's nothing you can do. Just keep playing, try to play well. And, um, you know, we're, you know we're, we're excited to at the prospect of, of continuing to follow you and hopefully uh, making something happen. That was it. And I, I, what do you do when you hang up from a call like that? Tell a lot of people, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know tell my friends and family and, you know, just put a smile on my face and boosted my ego and it, it actually spurred me on because that was the beginning of a, of a new season so I was excited. And to give this some context, Manchester United is probably the single most storied and popular team in, in all of sport. Um, so how long was it before you actually ended up getting signed? Well that was in January and then I, I, we had a, there might have been another point of contact at some time, I don't remember, but uh, in May we played Mexico and, and we played Mexico in Houston. And uh, that same goalkeeper coach had called myself or my agent and said that I'll, you know, he was going to fly over for the game, um, to watch the game, and to, you know, to meet with me briefly. We played, uh, we played well, I think the game was 0-0. And then that was it, basically. They, they got the ball rolling. I saw what they needed to see. And then it happened so very quickly after that. I mean, by June or July, I was signed. I was on a plane, signed, signed the contract, coming back over, packing up my stuff. and. Not that I had much stuff at that time. <laughs> and then I met up with the team for preseason. So in terms of your popularity then, I mean, and I guess the state of the MLS at that point anyways, you basically, you could walk down the street, go completely yeah. unrecognized. When you get off the plane in Europe, how quickly did you realize things have changed? I kind of knew that my world was going to change, you know, how much and exactly how, I wasn't sure, but I was, I think I was, I was preparing myself for like, okay, things are going to change in a big way. How did it change in terms of anonymity? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think that basically everyone, know, without even having played a game, everyone knew who I was. You know, in Manchester at the restaurants, at the, you know, at the stadium for press day and all the rest of it. People just, people know who football players are, soccer players are um, in England. And so, again, without having even kicked the ball, you know, there's so, so many more people knew my name than 
even they did in New Jersey. Uh, I, I know your very first game in the MLS, Giant Stadium versus Colorado yes. uh, was particularly significant for you, but then also your mom. She told me she almost fainted the first time <laughs> she saw you on the field. Your you know longtime friend and former coach Tim Mulqueen yes. talked about how nervous he was just <laughs> leading up to that game. But I wonder how how that compares to your first game with Manchester United. Yeah, very similar feelings. You know, um, you know, kind of trying to keep my head above water in the Colorado game, you know, not having played before. Um, just trying to keep it simple and, and make a few saves and stay out of the stay out of the headlines. And my first game for Manchester United was no different. Same butterflies, same nervousness. Um, you know, questions of whether I could compete at that level again, another step up. Um, keeping it simple, trying to make saves. You know, it didn't change. And um, but my mom, she's always she'll get nervous on this weekend. So. You know, I've played 600 games and nothing's changed, so, um, which is kind of funny. You've commented before, and I, I was shocked when I read this, uh, I don't enjoy the game. Mm. I've never actually had fun within the course mm. of those 90 minutes. Yeah, definitely. Why not? It's too intense. It's too emotional. Um, you know, I think I enjoy the build-up to it sometimes. <clears throat> um, definitely enjoy the feeling afterwards of putting in a hard hard day's work and, and hopefully if you got the right result that means there's a bunch of things that went really well I enjoy that there's, there's too much pressure on the game it's work you know it's work with you it's a it's a highly intensive chess match you know physical as well and you have to um, it's like a puzzle you have to figure out it's it's until you figure it out it's not it's not much fun it's it's too intense because even if you make a play, the, the athlete in all of us, the pessimist in all of us knows there's still time on the clock, there's still time f for the other team to do something great, you know, and until that's finished, there's not, there's not, enough, there's not enough time to enjoy it. Why do you play if you don't enjoy it? Um, well, I do. I, I, enjoy, I enjoy the build-up to it. Okay, you just... just and I enjoy the after. Okay. I just don't enjoy that 90 minutes. Got it, <laughs> okay. Uh, how hostile will fans get uh, behind the goal? Um, in England, very, you know, they... Lately, in what ways? They're just passionate about their team, and they say lots of things, and um, it's usually negative things I probably can't say on camera, but it's not, it's not just at me. I mean, it, as long as you're an opposing player on an opposing team, you're going to get heck, really. How much are you able to block it out? Yeah, now, it's, for me, it's no problem. Now, I'm, I've played that many games where, you know, you get hyper-focused on... on on the task at hand and everything else is kind of a, a peripheral blur. But you have said it's nearly impossible to stay focused for an entire 90-minute yes. game. So what will you think about at times? Oh, anything and everything. Um, you know, I do, I, I've, I've, found a, I've found a really good way over the years to kind of adapt to staying focused for, um, for long periods of time. And, and I think about anything, really. You know, anything that pops into my head, it doesn't last very long. It's a fleeting thought. you got to pick up the dry cleaning. After yeah, the anything. You know, what, what, you know, what am I doing next week? Or something, something funny that a guy said before the game or all sorts of crazy stuff. You ever catch yourself daydreaming? Uh, again, if I do, it's a, it's a very fleeting passing thought because I, ha I've, I have the ability now after so long to be able to stay focused. When an opposing player is approaching, you know, getting ready to take a shot on goal, what are you looking for? Nothing. It's all instinct at that point. Um, you see it so many times. That's why goalkeepers get better when they, as they get older. You see it so many times, you know, a thousand, thousands of times, tens of thousands of times. You see a shooter, you see his body language. 
you're just you're just reading the moment and not really look I I can tell you what I'm looking for now but in that moment I'm not actually thinking you know I'm just trying to read his body shape um, if there's an approaching defender where the defenders coming from that's, that's gonna help me um, get my angles better little things like that but it's all instinctual how do you decide which way to dive during a penalty kick oh I don't know um, I think sometimes you have a feeling about a guy, or maybe you've seen him. You know, you know, you, you watch highlights during the season, like any, like like any other sport, and you see, oh, maybe he's gone right, or maybe he's gone left. But I've had that in my head, and then in the game, something, what I think, what I what I perceive to be something, um, you know, made me clue into to it to another way, and I, I change direction. Sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong. It's it's, it's a crapshoot, really. The World Cup, uh, obviously the largest at athletic event on the globe. More than a billion people watch the World Cup on television live. What does the World Cup mean to you? For, for me, for any, for any international player, if that's the top, you, you can't get higher than that. Obviously, to, in club soccer, you can do some amazing things, but I think anybody will tell you, if you do it on the world stage, at the World Cup level, it's the top. It's the best players, it's the best teams in the world. If you're talking about a measuring stick, that's it. And, and, and you'll be remembered forever. Good or bad, you'll be remembered forever. Your favorite World Cup memory to date? Yeah, it would definitely be beating Algeria. Everyone knows that, you know. Uh, Landon scored, and we both teams needed it, so it, it became less of a soccer match and more of a tennis game, you know, just back and forth and back and forth. And um, it was wide open because both teams needed to advance and, and to score. And, you know, Landon scored that late goal, and it, it, we remember seeing like scenes on the highlights back home and the bars, people spilling their beers, and it was crazy. We had never seen that before in the U.S. And so it was a pretty cool moment, you know, that, that we were a part of that and we got to advance as a group. We actually finished first in the group, so it was cool. You said on the field you're an actor, mm -hmm. uh, and that's really just used to motivate people. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I, I think anytime you see a picture of me or any highlight, I'm yelling at somebody, you know. And I well, think... it's funny because I watch these TV <laughs> interviews you do, and you're like very like monotone and see? calm, and then out on the I'm getting a little yes. emotion yes. from you now, though, which is good. Yeah. But out on the field, you're like, I mean, mm. you have to be, you know, from the goalkeeping position. The goalkeeper's a leader. The goalkeeper sees everything. You know, we have the best perspective on the field because there's nothing, nothing behind us. There's no one running on the left or right of us. Everything's in front of us. Um, and so you need to you need to be a voice. You need to be kind of the coach and the leader, and you have to be the one pulling the reins, um, almost like a puppeteer. And and you know when you tell I, I say it's an act because you have to um, your presence ha has got to mimic the flow of the game. And sometimes um, you know when I scream and shout, it's only to it's only for effect. You know if if I think a guy is lethargic and not not pulling his weight, I need to say something that's going to get an immediate reaction, you know, and, and I think as players on the field, you have fans and they have opinions and they see certain things and sometimes the crowd gets on your back and it's, if everyone's body language is really calm, even if someone made a mistake, it's really calm, it just kind of, it gives, it gives a, a very easy feeling where if the crowd starts to get on top of you and you're shouting at each other and if it, 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 it makes for a very uneasy emotional time. But, but you weren't able to get on as your defenders as much 10 years ago as you are now, right? No. Uh, I mean, because yeah. you just oh. didn't have the... Clout. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you earn that. You earn that by playing games, by playing well. Um, you know, you earn that by, by giving respect, you know, as, as, much as, um, as much as you wanna sometimes yell and scream and point guys in the right direction, you have to give them respect. And, and to be honest, 
75% of the things I'm saying out there is positive feedback. Mm -hmm. Just don't. Well, right. So how, how much do you get on your defenders when they mess up? Depends how much they need getting on, you know? Um, you know, if it's one, it, everybody's different. Some defenders will slip up and they'll, they'll hold their hand up and say, gosh, my fault, you know? And other times, guy's head's in the clouds and doesn't know he messed up or, unless I mess up too, so I'm happy for guys to get on me. You know, most professional athletes, it seems, mid-20s, they're at, at the height of their mm -hmm. uh, performance ability, yet with goalkeepers, it is 30s, even mid-30s. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think that is? I just think we don't have a lot of, as, as demanding of a position as it, as it is physically, we don't have a lot of miles on our legs, we don't do all the running, um, and it's a very, it's a very uh, mentally challenging position, and I think you mature and you get older, and, and as I talked about, you gain experience on actual um, match day thing, you know, shooters and, and the way they like to dribble around you or shoot. Or you, you learn all these things and you pick them up. Tourette's, you said uh, before, if I woke up tomorrow without Tourette's, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> Why not? I don't know, it's, it's who I am. I like who I am. and. You know, I've had uh, I've had success in my in my professional life. I, I've got I've got the greatest friends that anybody can have. I've got two amazing children. I've got great I've got a great family. So I don't know. Life is good, and and this is the only life I know. So um, I don't know. It's, it's it, I'm, I I like who I am, and it's part of my personality. Go, going back to when you were a child, your uh, mother Esther told me. Yeah. It seemed like the symptoms, to her at least, developed over the course of like a day. Yeah. Um, what do you recall from the first time you really felt like something was wrong? Mm. And it, which happens a lot. You hear that from so many parents. You know that that all, all of a sudden, boom. Uh, over. Yeah. A, I mean, it probably didn't happen overnight because uh -huh. the kid probably recognized it and tried right. to hide it. But eventually, it just it starts to get into motion, and it's like, wow, when did that happen? Um, I don't know. I, I can't. I can't put an exact moment, but I remember. Um, some sort of head movement or eye movement or twitch, and it happened. It, 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 I did it a lot, and it was weird and it was odd. Um, you know, I remember a lot of OCD, a lot of counting, a lot of touching, a lot of things like that, you know. Um, again, which just felt probably not normal. They became normal pretty quickly, um, but it didn't feel normal at the time. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because your mom uh, gave, gave me a few examples of yeah. that. She said uh, you'd come in from outside having to go to the bathroom. Uh -huh. The bathroom was on the far end of the apartment. Before you'd go to the bathroom, there'd be certain things yeah. every time in the room that you had to touch. Yeah. Or before you would talk to your mom, you had to <laughs> tap her three times on the uh, shoulder. Uh, yeah, that was um, a funny one, yeah. And she also said you just could not, for the life of you, bear to throw anything away. Mm -hmm. Um, in all of those instances, like, what are you thinking about that, you know, would make you act that way? I don't know. My mind, I don't think I was thinking. It was just natural. That, that's what, that's what my mind was wanting to do, you know? Um, so there was, obviously there was some pretty funny, funny moments in there, you know? Um, was it funny at the time, though? I, I mean, did... Did, did you realize? Yeah, something? I realized. But my mom was great, you know, okay. stuff like that. She just didn't. She did her research on it. She she found out stuff, but she just let me be me, you know, and it, which was which was great. So it wasn't like anyone called me on it, you know. It was just it was just some weird stuff that I was doing. When are symptoms generally the worst? Usually right before a game, you know. So that's 24 hours before before a match. They're they're very very intense. And what will happen? Um, 
just get uh, get super tense, you know. Like the the my tics and twitches will will become uh, will become heightened more often. Um, I can feel the tenseness in my muscles, and it's normal to me now. Why not take uh, medication for it? I know that's something mm-hmm. you've uh, avoided forever. Um, I, you know what? Ages and ages ago, when I was probably a, a young teenager, just before. We spoke to, my, my mom and I spoke to a doctor, I think, in New York, and, um, you know, unfortunately, quite a lot of medical professionals don't have it right yet. It's just a, it's just a, a concoction of, of drugs for other um, ailments, and they kind of, you know, take that for a few months, see how it works, lower dosage, lessen the dosage, change the medicine. And, and at the time, um, the doctor had said, well, you know, it'll kind of, It'll make you drowsy, it'll make you zombie-like. And, and I just said, even then, I said, I, I like who I am. I've got great friends, you know, they don't, they don't make fun of sure. me. And I don't need to change anything. You know, and I, that, was at, that was at a, you know, again, a, I was a young teenager, but I, I didn't want to, or maybe I was in my mid-teens, I, I didn't want to not be who I was. But it is interesting you mentioned that because for a while you did apparently try to hide it from like mm. friends, yeah. family, later on, yep. the, the, the teammates mm-hmm. in press. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you feel compelled to do that? I think a lot. Of, I, I I wasn't very good at hiding it, you know. Um, I think a lot of kids do. You know, some kids can go two ways with with TS, and I've and I've and I've seen it. And I don't think there's a right way. Even now, when I speak to kids and they tell me their stories, some kids are just you know super brave and and bold, and they want to you know look. This is what I. They've got a good good family unit. and They want to tell their class, and they want this is who they are. And I think that's I think that's wonderful. If you feel that. that like I did, you know, I, it was something that I wanted to suppress and I wanted to hide, and um, you know, I, maybe I wasn't brave enough at the time. How, how did you try and hide it? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I tried to be as still as I possibly could for as long as I possibly could, but um, again, I don't think it worked very well. What made you decide to open up and mm. tell people? Again, I think there was a time uh, when I was at the Metro Stars where. Um, I was a backup goalkeeper, and then I became a starting goalkeeper. And I just, I don't know, I think there was a, I made a conscious decision that, look, I'm going to be a starting goalkeeper, and I'm going to be on television more, I'm going to be in the press more, and people are going to see it. And so I just, at that point, I just thought, there's no reason to, to hide this anymore, you know? It's, it's, it's not going to be of any use. People are going to see it anyway, you know? Right. So, um, and that gave me a good platform to, to, use, to use that. How well do you recall the British newspaper headlines when you first signed with Manchester United? You know what? Uh, people have... Uh, I mean, talk people, about ignorant. Yeah, very ignorant. People have, have, have sh- showed it to me. I, I don't. I, it was such a whirlwind of so much going on that I never picked up the paper when I was in Manchester to, for my signing and saw the headlines. And people showed it to me. And, you know, rightfully so, my family got upset about it, which I would too. I've got, I've got children. If that was my, my son or daughter or, or brother or whomever, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be pissed too. But... For me, it was nothing. It was, you know, ignorant journalists writing nonsense to try and sell papers, and they still do it today. <laughs> Nothing's changed. So after your first season with Manchester United, you win Goalkeeper of the mm-hmm. Year awards. Your second season, though, uh, mistakes become, you know, more, more frequent. How amazed were you by how quickly opinion of you changed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was a surprise, um, but it was also part of my learning curve, you know. Um, but it was good. It was good for me. You know, I think the I think the first year Manchester United things went went flawlessly, and um, it was it was it was brilliant. And that was good to have, you know. But I also think life's about checks and balances, and you know, to have to have a season where things didn't go my way, 
you know, it taught me some harsh lessons, but some invaluable lessons. What were the lessons? Well, just that I needed to improve. And I always, I always knew I needed to improve. But um, again, there's a professional learning curve and you get better and you, you sink or swim. And so I needed to step up to the plate, challenge myself, get better and learn. Um, and I think I did that. Well, and it's interesting, uh, your longtime friend and former coach mm -hmm. Tim McQueen was telling me uh, how one of the biggest lessons you learned from that experience was that it's a business. Mm -hmm. um, what made that sink in? Well, I think there was a lot of people who I didn't know um, in and around Manchester United that would, um, because I knew nothing else, I went in and had immediate success. So they sang my praises and, you know, lots of pats on the back and lots of good mornings. And then um, when things weren't going so well, the same people who I thought were great, you know, they'd walk past me in the hallway and not say good morning, you know. Uh, so I learned very quickly that it was a business and it was a good lesson. I think it's interesting because you've had so much success now with uh, learning about kind of the, the mm -hmm. trying moments that mm -hmm. uh, shaped you and you end up, uh, you know, switching teams yeah. to another team in England, Everton in mm -hmm. 2006. Your manager at the time was uh, quoted as saying, since we signed Tim, he's worked to prove what happened to him at Manchester United was only a learning experience as opposed to what might have led to the downfall of his career. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder, how is your confidence impacted by what happened with Manchester United and how do you recover from that? Oh, I think, you know, I've, I've been around, you know, I've had some amazing people in my life, my mother and Tim Mulqueen, who, you know, head down, walk straight ahead and, and work hard. And I think, I think hard work is, you know, a hard day's work is, is everything. And, and that's, the, that's, that's the only way you get better in any walk of life is working hard and, um, you know, not worrying about poor me and all the rest of it, just getting better. I knew I had the talent. It was just about trying to get better. Um, each and every day, which I did. You know, I, 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 I hardly ever miss a day's training. And I also, you know, I, I, I also had a manager in David Moyes who believed in me, you know, which, so, so, you know, to have someone who believed You, you said he gave you all the confidence all the in the world. Yeah, I love him dearly. I think he's, you know, for me, the, where I was at my career, again, it, it, was, it was a crossroad, but whether it was big or small, I, I needed to move on, I needed to plan, I needed to get better. Um, and he gave me the keys, you know, he just said, look, I want you, you, know, I want you to be my goalkeeper, I want you to play. And, you know, for a club the size of Everton, which is a big club, you know, that was, that was huge for me, you know, and he, he always, he backed me. I played, for, I played for David Moyes for seven years, hundreds of games, and he always backed me, always, and I love him dearly. I think he's a brilliant manager, um, and he was just so instrumental in my career because he, he, he gave me the, the, that belief that I needed. What interests you in, uh, about working in an MLS front office? Um, I want to stay in the game. You know, and I think I think as players, there's there's when you leave the game, there's different options: coaching, do te doing television. And maybe that doesn't interest you anymore. I know yeah. a couple of years back, at least. Yeah, wor listen, working in working for for a club, um, you know, working in U.S. soccer. There's always there's a bunch of things that excite me. Um, just being around the game, I want to be around the game. I love it. It's given it's given me so much, probably more than I could ever give back to it. So, but I would I would like to do that. I think I have a a skill set and knowledge and experience that could that could help certain clubs or, or a club but I've been I've been dabbling in television recently and I've got the bug for that now so I'm, I'm, tr I'm gonna try and learn that trade and get better at it so how much do you like that I love it I honestly you do. I, you know, yeah and in fact I've I've shied away from doing stuff like that because I just didn't really think it was for me and I got a I got a pretty brilliant opportunity with uh, with NBC and I just sure. I, 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 I did it one time I thought it was gonna be a one-off and then it ended up being 
eight, eight games and I, I've, I've fallen in love with it. I've fallen in love with it because um, at the time when I started, I knew I wasn't gonna, I, I, I wasn't gonna be perfect. So there was gonna be some constructive criticism. Sure. And I wasn't sure if I would, if I would take that on board or if I'd say, listen, heck with this, I'm too busy. You know, I, I don't wanna, and I've, I've loved it. I've loved, I, you know, it's, I've gotten the bug where, um, I, I get, you know, I get, uh, from Pierre Moussa, the, the producer, I get I get some serious constructive criticism, and I take it on board, and I get hungry for the next game to try and make it better. Like, what do you like about actually doing it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I I, I think I, I like I like the nerves. Uh, you know, before I go on camera, I get very nervous, very, which is a very similar feeling for an athlete that you get before a game. You know, and, and there's not many things in life that excite me in that way, that, that give me nerves, that make me really need to step up to the plate and, and challenge myself. So I think when you find something like that, uh, you have to hold on to it. So what's the deal with you and tattoos? <laughs> My hobby. Doesn't look like you have any on right I now know, other than the, yeah, the one it's all, in the leg. I'm all over. It's my hobby, I love it. It's, a, it's an amazing art form. What's, uh, Hey, your mom said something interesting when I was talking to her about this. She said, I'm a firm believer that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> that's brilliant. I'm sure she's, yeah, I get to see that. Every now and again, I'll get excited about one and she'll say, oh, that's nice, yeah. How did you, what led you to start getting them? No, I don't know. Like I said, I just, I, I was drawn to the art form. I love tattoos, even tattoos that I wouldn't necessarily get on my body and I see them on someone else. I, you know, I think, I think tattooers are just amazing, amazing artists in, in, in every single way, you know, from start to finish. The whole process is a beautiful thing. I love it. Is it true you've gone to a, a tattoo artist before and just told them to come up with something? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, uh, I'm trying to think how many times I've done that. How many times you've done yeah, it? Yeah, a couple, I mean, it depends. There's so many great artists. And when you get, a, when you get an amazing artist, you, you know, I don't really want to be giving her or him my great artistic ideas because they're not that great, you know? And, and you see some of the hand sketch drawings of, of some of these artists are incredible. So. You know, if you're a tattoo collector and you love tattoos, you, you want original pieces. So, depending on how good the artist is, I, I, you know, I give them a little bit of leeway, but most of the time it works out really, really well. So, how many do you have? I mean, my whole my whole front's done, almost almost full sleeves on both arms, and I'm getting a back piece done, which is going to take a long time because it hurts. <laughs> really a pleasure, Tim. Yeah, awesome. Thank Thanks you. for making the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Tim Howard. For more content from the interview, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And as always, before you go, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.